Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 74 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at what needs to be in place in the UK before the ban on new fossil fuel vehicle sales comes into place in 2030. This will be the first of a couple of episodes as we discuss the different issues and concerns that will arise and what needs to be done to ensure the ban can go in on time. Before we start, I wanted to wish everyone a happy new year. 2020 hasn't been the best for many people, and that's a bit of an understatement. With a coronavirus vaccine on the way, hopefully things will start to return to some semblance of normality over the coming months. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Our main topic of discussion today is 2030. The UK government has set 2030 as the deadline for the end of the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles in the UK. Note, this is not the end of the sale of fossil fuels, nor the end of the sale of fossil fuel vehicles. It's just the end of the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles. So what we don't need to worry about short term is getting rid of petrol stations or trying to find some alternate to keep fossil fuel cars going. Back in the mid-80s, governments around the world decided that lead in petrol was damaging the environment and health of the population, so leaded fuel was banned. In its place came unleaded fuel. But there were still vehicles that needed leaded fuel to work. To accommodate these vehicles, an additive was created which replicated the leaded fuel and was sold to go alongside unleaded. Some places kept one or two leaded fuel pumps available, but the point is that the needs of the many did not override the needs of the few. Nowadays, very few people could imagine polluting the air with leaded fuel, and this is what will happen with the switch to EVs, and that's why the UK government is looking at the banning of the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles first. Over time, that will expand to the sale of any fossil fuel vehicle, but that's quite a few years in the future. So now we don't need to worry about getting rid of petrol stations. What do we need to worry about? Well, there are a list of things that need to be done or in place to make the ban a success. I'm going to go through them briefly now, and the rest of this episode will be taken up with discussing the first few entries on the list, and next week we'll follow up with the remaining entries. So what do we need? At its basic level, we need to address the following items to ensure a successful ban on the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles in 2030. In fact, this list is uh, pretty universal and it applies to any country wanting to ban fossil fuel vehicles in almost any timescale. The list is in no particular order of importance. Number one, we need ubiquitous, reliable charging infrastructure. Number two, we need to be encouraging motor manufacturers to make more and different EVs. Three, we need to be reducing the price of new EVs. Four, we need better dealer education on electric vehicles. Five, we need better public education about electric vehicles. Six, we need to find a replacement for fuel duty. Seven, we need better and more widespread home charging solutions. And eight, we need pain-free charging solutions for the public. I'm going to go through each of these in turn and give some thoughts on why we aren't there now and what we need to do to move forward. In this episode, we'll cover the first four items. Next week, we'll look at the next four. So let's get started. Rolling out charging infrastructure. If you look back at the archive episodes of this podcast, you'll see that we have several episodes on chargers and the charging infrastructure itself. And we've said at the end of each of these episodes that the charging infrastructure will never be as bad as it is today and will get better each and every day. And this is borne out by the fact that in the last 30 days alone, we've seen the installation of almost 600 new chargers in the UK, of which 160 were rapid chargers suitable for high speed charging while on the go. Since 2015 alone, we've seen the numbers rise from a little under 1,100 rapid charger connectors to over 6,200 connectors on the CCS or CHAdeMO standard. 
But in that same time period, the number of electric cars on the road has increased from 20,000 battery electric vehicles to nearly 184,000 battery electric vehicles. So the speed at which new cars are going on the road is not being matched by the underlying infrastructure. All figures are courtesy of ZapMap. Companies such as GridServe, who we'll be talking with in the new year, are introducing electric forecourts, which look like motorway service areas, but they're not on the motorway and they only charge electric vehicles. With up to 36 high-powered chargers at a station and 100 stations planned over the next five years or so, this is a significant addition to the charging infrastructure. But we also need to be looking at other forms of charging infrastructure. Destination chargers will be key for 98% of trips where people are travelling well within the range of their vehicles. Go to the shop for groceries, plug in on a 7kW charger while you wait. Go watch a movie when the cinemas reopen, or grab a meal when the tier restrictions are lifted, and plug your car in while it's not being used, and there needs to be many, many more of these. We also need to remember that there will be a portion of the population that won't be able to charge at home, so they'll need alternative charging options. There are two of these, workplace charging and roadside charging. Workplace charging will probably be the main way this happens. Co-founder of the podcast Simon has no home charging, but he manages to live with charging at his workplace and using destination chargers. I charged at work on a seven kilowatt new motion charger. Uh, I, I leave my car basically plugged in for the day. So if it's cold or it's warm, I can preheat or cool uh, when I come out. No one else uses it, which is good. And um, that's approximately 10p a kilowatt as well. So with the journey back home, um, I'll probably be left with a 90 mile uh, range on the guessometer. And that will put me in good stead for Wednesday's journey um, to a customer site. So, um, yeah, um, having a work charger, certainly um, uh, where it is at the moment, is uh, is very convenient and takes some of the um, issues out of um, public charging. For on-street parking, there are already solutions available. These range from charging cables installed in lampposts to small 7-kilowatt charging posts fitted at various places on the pavement to fantastic options which hide underground when not needed and pop up when a car has to charge. But at the moment, there aren't enough of these for potential demand to be met. We also recently looked at induction chargers or wireless charging in an episode. In that, we talked about charging taxis and buses using wireless charging pads placed in taxi ranks and at bus stops. This is in place in Oslo already. The technology is there. We need to be looking at getting this installed in the UK and other countries. As listener Roy Sheriff, a taxi and private hire operator, often tells me, you can't have a car off the road charging. Time is money. So if we can integrate the charging with other aspects of the daily drive, that makes things so much easier. Most local councils have a maximum age for vehicles that could be used as taxis or private hire vehicles. If that age limit clashes with the new fossil fuel car ban, then taxi drivers are going to be looking for solutions that help them make the transition to EV. Secondly, we need to be encouraging more motor manufacturers to produce more electric vehicles. Not only more electric vehicles physically in terms of higher production numbers, but a more diverse range of electric vehicles. Although the market is not exactly static when it comes to EVs, there are still sectors which are very underserved. Where's the EV that can easily tow a caravan? Or the EV that can seat a family of six or eight but not cost Mercedes or Model X money? The government will need to encourage manufacturers to look at these markets because many manufacturers will want to trail rather than lead when it comes to these segments. As current EV model releases have shown us, the SUV type model and the around town car type model tend to dominate the market, Tesla aside. 
High-end manufacturers have produced cars like the Mercedes EQC, the Audi e-tron and the Porsche Taycan. The recent fully charged EV World Cup listed 32 different electric vehicles available for sale in the UK today. That's pretty impressive. But we've yet to see any vehicle, for example, that will replace the car currently being used by the company rep, doing his daily Vauxhall Insignia or Ford Mondeo journey. Fleet uptake is going to be key for this to work, especially in the early stages. The financial aspects of owning EVs from a total cost of ownership point of view is well known and documented. But if the cars that can fit the daily needs of the buyers aren't there, then things will always be difficult. Thirdly, the price of EVs will need to come down. Now, we've always said on this podcast that a £30,000 EV costs the same as a £30,000 fossil fuel car. If the purchasing of new cars is done mainly by fleet purchasers or companies for their employees, the actual price won't matter. I mean, a typical company car such as a BMW 3 Series will cost a similar amount of money to a Kia e-Niro, which will replace it. But overall, the price of EVs needs to drop as we prep for large-scale adoption of EVs. Price parity will arrive in a couple of years as battery prices drop. But in the meantime, as Robert Llewellyn said on a recent episode of his podcast, we need to stop specking up EVs to be much higher than the equivalent internal combustion engine car. When people look, for example, at the electric Mini and see that it's you know thousands of pounds more expensive than the base model, they don't tend to look at it and see a car which is more highly specced than the base model. What they see is an expensive electric car. Why should they pay that much more? As the price of batteries continues to drop, this will bring the absolute price of the cars down and parity will ensue. In fact, in certain aspects, it will be cheaper to own the EV as maintenance and repair costs will be lower. Fourthly, we have the problems of dealers themselves. In an earlier episode on dealers, we noted that there tends to still be an aspect of buying an EV through a dealer, which is fraught with misinformation and hidden agendas. Dealers make money on servicing, not sales. EV servicing and repairs don't bring anywhere near as much money in as ICE car servicing. Furthermore, there are aspects of EV selling that mainstream dealers are not up to speed with, the different charging methods, for example. There is anecdotal evidence of iPACE drivers being given quote-unquote instructions on charging from dealers who literally tell them, use the cable that fits this and that's it, and the port they're pointing at is the AC port, not the DC fast charge port. So we end up with iPaces sitting on the AC connector at charges for hours. So dealer education needs to be improved, and there are many ways this can be done. But to ensure it's done, you need to have dealers who are willing to sell your EVs. Cadillac in the US recently sent out a note to its dealership telling them that they're moving into EV sales and anyone who doesn't want to be part of that can break their dealership contract and be paid to do so. Just 17% of their dealers opted to take them upon this offer. That's good. But the flip side of this is in Germany. German Volkswagen dealers failed to recommend the brand's flagship electric car, the ID3, to secret shoppers with a suitable driving profile, according to a new study by Greenpeace. Out of 50 dealers visited, only 8 of them, 16%, recommended the ID3, and the percentage was even lower, 4%, for customers who didn't specifically mention that they were considering the ID3. In other studies utilising secret shoppers, there is a pattern of dealers lacking knowledge or even actively working to discourage buyers from purchasing an EV. In the same secret shopper test, dealers were asked questions about charging in EVs, charging station availability, can you charge at home, will it overload the power grid, are they a greater fire hazard, and what it means for the ID3 to be climate neutral. 48% got the answers wrong. This cannot continue. Perhaps the government can hold dealers to account for activity like this. 
It's certainly ironic that a lot of the EV uptake we see today is due to the Dieselgate scandal from VW, who ended up funding a large part of the EV infrastructure in Europe through the Ionity network, as well as producing the e-Golf and now the full ID range of models. The secondary issue related to dealers is the physical skill set for dealing with EVs. Despite the fact that EVs need minimal servicing, they do need some work carrying out on them from time to time. Dealers need to understand how to service EVs and what to do if, God forbid, parts start to go wrong. Do they know how to deal with anything that needs the battery looked at? Do they understand the impact of the high voltage cables, for example? There needs to be a training program in place for all auto manufacturers as they move forward with electric vehicles. This is starting in some places, not least in the independent market. Clearly EV have been selling and servicing electric cars for quite some time and they've recently announced the creation of a mobile EV servicing service, if that makes sense, where a Nissan ENV200 will come to you and service your EV. James Coates from James and Kate is running that particular operation for them. Well done on that, guys. So next week, we'll look at the last four items on the list and wrap it up with a neat little bow, I hope. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with you listeners. In a recent survey, 91% of EV owners in the UK say they wouldn't go back to an internal combustion engine car. The survey, conducted by ZapMap in November, asked EV owners whether they'd go back to an ICE car. 91% said no, 8% said maybe, and only 1% said absolutely. The thing that's interesting about this is that 71% said this was their first EV and 52% had purchased their car in the last 12 months. As we head towards the 2030 new fossil fuel sale ban in the UK, this is exactly the sort of thing we need in place to help persuade internal combustion engine car drivers that this is the way they need to go. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, please use the EV Musings Twitter account MusingsEV or I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast and the newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. If you want a quick reference ebook to read on your Kindle, I wrote a little something called So, You've Gone Electric. It's available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99 pence or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. At the moment, it's free. Free as in beer on Kindle Unlimited, or if you're in the Kindle Lending Lab, please check it out. Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review, preferably five stars, as it helps raise visibility and extends our reach in search engines. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, for Christmas, he got a brand new state-of-the-art jacuzzi. All the gadgets, including remote control. So if it's cold or it's warm, I can preheat or cool uh, when I come out. No one else uses it, which is good. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.